Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Frank Bellamconda. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Always On EM podcast. I'm really excited to host another episode with my colleague, Dr. Alex Finch, and I, of course, am Dr. Venk Bellamconda. Today, we have a guest from my home state of Ohio, from The Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. I am thrilled to introduce Dr. Lauren Sutherland today. Dr. Sutherland, welcome to the program. Can you tell us about yourself? Thank you so much for having me on, Vank and Alex. This is wonderful. I am a geriatric fellowship-trained emergency medicine physician at Ohio State. I did my residency training at Duke University, then I did a geriatric fellowship at Beaumont, and then I came to OSU because there was another geriatric EM person here, Jeff Caterino, doing research. And as many of you who subspecialize know, if you're the only one who's doing your subspecialty at an ED, you're kind of like a gong clanging in the wilderness. But once you get two and then maybe three people, then suddenly you're able to do so much more. So it's been wonderful here and we built up a big program. Love that. When I finished my ultrasound fellowship, I was the only one on our staff who had that specialty. And I didn't feel so much like a gong as much as I was being torn in every direction (laughs) to try and help everybody with everything. But that's really great insight for people who might be looking for a job. Now, you didn't mention, Lauren, that you are also president of ASAP's geriatrics EM section and former president of SAEM's geriatrics EM section, right? Yes. That's Both amazing. amazing groups. Yeah, that's such a wonderful thing. And we're really honored to have you on our show today. Both the ASAP and SAM have geriatric emergency medicine groups. SAM focuses more on education and research, and ASAP focuses more on clinical practice. We actually work really well together, and we try to make sure that the education we give at both conferences is a little bit different so people can get a different flair. And there's always plenty to learn in emergency medicine. I know I don't know much about geriatrics as a specialty within EM at all, and I'm really excited to learn from you. You had mentioned before this that there's a pre-conference at ASAP. What's that about? Many of you may have heard that this new concept, this newfangled idea of geriatric emergency departments, and the idea that the ER as we know it was built for a person with no past medical history who was in a car accident. We are excellent at that. We are amazing at the acute injury. We are very good at pneumonia, at sepsis. What we are not good at is the person who has multiple medical histories or who is vulnerable in the community and needs more social support or social economic support and who may come in with a atypical or vague presentation. Family brings in their 70-year-old mother and said, She's just been fatigued the past two days. That's certainly one of the hardest clinical encounters. It it is because the ED is not built for it. And we don't even teach residents how to do the proper assessments for that. We kind of give this shotgun approach that's based off our prior training on identify the acute illness. So we say, okay, well, did you have chest pain? Did you have abdominal pain? Have you developed a rash, snotty nose? When was your last COVID test? But we don't talk about What's your cognitive baseline? How functional were you before you became fatigued the past two days? How big a change is this? Is it that 
grandma has slowly been doing less, but she was getting up to the chair. And now in the past month, she's really staying in bed more. These things are more critical to the diagnosis than whether or not they felt more short of breath. So it's a different way of thinking when we have to take care of these people and you need a more interdisciplinary approach. Vank and Alex, you are amazing ED physicians. You work at an amazing center at Mayo Clinic, but this is the time where you need a case manager to talk through and say, do you have home health? Do you have resources? Who's with grandma all day? What does she normally need at home? You might need a physical therapist to say, you know, her gait's really off and she should be using a cane or maybe it comes to light that, yeah, she's been more fatigued the past two days, but she had a fall three days ago and didn't tell anybody. Now that changes your whole management and it's really hard to get that information. So geriatric emergency medicine is about taking our acute care approach, broadening it out, incorporating these other specialists to aid us because we only have five minutes to do this. Because there's somebody crashing and there's, you know, somebody needs Narcan and roommate and it's, you need a team. And then you need a team, not only in the ED, but passing it along. What do we need to do to get them set up in the community? What do we need to pass on to our inpatient physicians? Is she fatigued? Is it dementia? Is it acute delirium? Because those three things are all different and change your workup. I think something that's really interesting about geriatric emergency medicine is in a lot of ways it, it identifies the core values of emergency medicine and and identifies that they are a little bit different for a different population. I think about what's expected of me sometimes with an acute care presentation for a younger adult. I assess them. I'm supposed to immediately have a plan based on uh, a familiar chief complaint and have a disposition. And that's going to happen quickly. And hopefully I'll save a life. It'll, I'll, I'll clearly make a diagnosis. I'll intervene and make a big difference. And what you're describing is that for a huge subset of our population, I won't be the single tool that will do that. And in some ways, that approach that I'm taught might be detrimental to their care or uh, at the very least fail to provide uh, a substantial benefit to them. And that's why we're so excited to have you on the show to open our eyes. You talked a little bit about the importance of geriatric emergency medicine and the journey towards starting the journey towards a geriatric ED I was really interested in in a 2020 concepts piece in Annals of Emergency Medicine that that you put out talking about several models of clinical care. Would you be willing to give us a 10,000-foot view of different approaches to geriatric emergency medicine and clinical practice? Would I be willing to talk about my own research? Why, yes, (laughs) I'm delighted to. So grateful for you to ask. So, you know, this concept has been evolving over the past several decades, and it's evolved differently in different places. And we know that what works in a big tertiary care academic center might not work in your community hospital that has 20 ED beds. At our main hospital, I can call down physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, geriatric consultant. I have 24-hour case management and social work. I have money for equipment. I have transitions of care set up with our community services. I'm in a big city with tons of community services. That's not the same elsewhere. And so people have had to develop different models of care that fit within the resources and the needs of their patients. And when I came to OSU, they said, we're so happy to have you. We think geriatrics is really important. Please do everything you can to make us a better place, but we can't spend any money and we can't give you more staff. And I said, that sounds very familiar. Yeah. 
challenge accepted. And at the time, most of the major places who had become geriatric EDs had had either external funding from, some of them had a big grant from CMS, some of them had um, uh, foundation grants. And I said, okay, let's see what we can do with no money. And so what we came up with was using our observation unit. I couldn't afford to have a physical therapist stationed in the ED to help me assess older adults' gates and see what they needed at home, but I could keep them overnight to see the physical therapist from eight till five or when we had them in their routine hours. So that's the model of care we developed, which initially was very observation unit heavy. Other places designed specific units in the ED. So just like you have a trauma bay and a fast track or quick care area, they developed a geriatric area. And they would put specialized equipment. People may have made beautiful things with, you know, skylights and windows to reduce delirium. And um, you want high contrast paint between the walls and the thresholds and things so people don't fall and grab bars everywhere and bigger bathrooms. So there's wonderful things you can do. But if you're in an ED where you can't renovate your old your whole ED like that. And you have, you know, curtains and tiny areas and you can barely fit a second chair by the gurney, let alone Mm -hmm. a walker and a cane. You've got to do things differently. So there's the the individual we have, we're renovating our ED and we built a beautiful geriatric friendly area. That's great, but there are pluses or minuses because every time you designate an area to specific patients in the ED, you reduce your triage efficacy and your flow through the ED. Absolutely. Because suddenly your nurse is saying, well, this older adult's going to go to the bed in the geriatric pod, but this one has to go to the trauma bay or something. You, you make more right. branch points in your logic. It can be helpful because you now have everything in one space. Maybe you have a geriatric trained nurse rounding and, and your multidisciplinary team is there, but it, it can be difficult. So that's, an, that's one model. The OBS unit is another model. And then there have been some areas that have just said, we're making the whole ED geriatric friendly. All our nurses are going to get some basic training. We're going to screen everybody for falls risk, delirium, doesn't matter how old you are, five or 85, we're going to see what you need. So all those three models have worked really well and all show better outcomes than standard ED care. So what I would say, if you come to me and ask, Lauren, what should our ED do? I have to say, what are your ED resources? Do you have a huge OBS unit that's really capable and thriving and already consults a lot of these teams? Are you going to do a big renovation and want to make the whole ED geriatric friendly? Do you want to focus on front door, back end, avoiding admissions? What, what does your hospital prioritize and what resources do you have and then build off there? I ask a follow-up question to that. So Lauren, that's focused on what the hospital has available because realistically that's going to be the most effective to get off the ground. But let's say you had unlimited resources and you were trying to create from the ground up overnight the ideal situation for geriatrics patients. So thinking about what they need, what would that look like? That would be amazing. Like my heart is singing thinking about that question. <laughs> And the great thing about your question, Frank, is everything we do to help older adults actually helps every patient in the ED. Okay. I was going to ask that as a follow-up, how it affects, say, pediatrics to have a geriatric-specific ED, but that's awesome. So uh, imagine this, an ED with closed-door rooms and private bathrooms for everybody and equipment. So geriatric ED equipment starts with... um, several different categories. The first one is equipment for people who are sensory impaired. 
When you are picked up by EMS off the floor at 3 a.m. and brought to the ED after a fall trying to get up to the bathroom, they don't stop and say, where are your hearing aids and your dentures and your glasses? They scoop you up and they go. And then that person arrives in the ED. And imagine you're arriving in an ambulance to an ED at three in the morning. You don't have your hearing aids. Everybody's fuzzy. Everybody's shouting at you. It's a setup for delirium. So we have pocket talkers, which are the quick little hearing aids. It looks like earbuds and a volume button. So easy to use. Patients literally stand up and hug me when we get one for them. And it makes the rest of your clinical care so easy. And honestly, they're 15 bucks a piece. Uh, We have reading glasses, a dollar a piece for a pair of reading glasses. So we can actually read the blood consent before they sign it or the surgical consent before they go get their appendix out. So in your dream ED, I'm assuming every room would have these like in the room ready for the patient. Or you have a cart somewhere. We have two equipment stations in our ED. We have, uh, I think we're technically 106 beds and chairs combined, 86 full beds, but now every hallway has things up and down. (laughs) Wow. We work in a big ED, but it's not that big. (laughs) That's fantastic. So we have two equipment stations and the next thing is equipment to help patients who are agitated or delirious. So if you have patients that are waiting for four hours stuck in bed, that's bad for them. So you want to have some newspapers, some crosswords, word searches, some things, um, some places have iPads for patients so they can do some activities while they're waiting. Anything to keep people cognitively engaged so that they are up during the day and sleep at night. We have white noise machines to help people sleep out so we can turn the lights off, set up They're actually the white noise machines with the starlight projectors that you get for your two-year-old. Amazing. And the nurses love you them turn too. turn the starlights on? Yeah. That's yeah, because when you have someone in pain, you could like turn the beautiful nebulas on the ceiling and make gentle ocean waves. And or if they need a urine sample, they turn it to the uh, rain falling sound. <laughs> Does that <Yes>. work? <laughs> I, your next research project, right? Exactly. There. <laughs> um, and the nurses, they like to have the lights projecting at the nurses' station, so they're like thunderclouds above the nurses' station or beautiful glowing lights. <laughs> I, I, they said, we know these are for the patients. And I said, it doesn't care. If they make you happy, then your care for patients is better too. And it might signal, if it's thundering, don't approach. <laughs> <laughs> the charge nurse has the lightning going. <laughs> right, exactly. So things to help people sleep when it's time to sleep. And I don't know, maybe you guys have solved the boarding issue, but we haven't quite yet. So we'll sometimes have patients. And can you imagine sitting in an ER for 48 hours with all the noise and the dings and everyone coming in and out and ambulance bay doors opening and shutting? We have little sleep kits with eye masks, earplugs, and you stick the white noise machine on. And even if I can get somebody three hours of sleep, that will make them heal better, their pain better, their mood better. And again, this is a geriatric intervention, but who doesn't that help? That makes sense. You can see everyone benefiting from that. And then we have stuff for agitation of squeezy balls and toys, posy aprons, IV sleeve covers, and things to help with that. So, And then the last thing is mobility equipment. So you need mobility equipment. For some reason, EDs didn't think that people needed walkers and canes. And so we left them bed bound if you had any mobility needs and made you use a bedpan. But if you hand people 
a walker like they use at home, they can get up to the bathroom. Now, I think I know what mobility equipment is. The, I'm picturing the silver walker with no wheels and whatever. But is that that's what you mean? Or do you mean some of those rolling things that turn into a seat? And We had we started with rollators, walkers. You need some bariatric equipment, too, depending on your population. So if you're going to order some for your ED, make sure you get one or two bariatric walkers. And we have one-point canes and four-point canes. So the nurses can literally ask people, do you use anything at home to walk around? Oh, yeah, I use a four-point cane. Okay, here's one in your room while you stay here. If you need to get up to the bathroom, let me know, and we'll go together. Really incredible. Uh, it sounds like you're able to mimic a lot of the home environment to make people more comfortable and less likely, perhaps, to have delirium while they're in the ED. Earlier, you had mentioned a couple of key people in a, a dream geriatric emergency department. Uh, I really want to talk about that. In the in the perfect geriatric ED, who's the dream team? You want to have an ED pharmacist or pharmacy tech to do medication reviews because we as the physicians don't have time to go through a list of 20 meds, figure out what they're taking, if they're taking them correctly, when they were last filled, and then think about what's inappropriate in older adults. And we know that when older adults come to the ED, so many of them are on medications that could worsen their chance of delirium and falls and or have medication reactions that brought them to the ED. So a pharmacist is immensely helpful. Having someone who has geriatric training, and this is done in different ways. This could be a geriatric trained nurse. There's actually an emergency nurses association geriatric certification. Many people call them genie nurses because that's the way the acronym works out. And he gets a 17 or 18 hour course but it trains you to do a cognitive assessment, assess for depression, home safety. The triage questions we ask people, you know, when they come in the door, have you been from a country that's had Ebola in the last six months? Have you been exposed to tuberculosis? Have you fallen in the last 30 days? Do you feel safe at home? It, we fire those out in triage, which is really hard for anybody to answer them all appropriately, but we know that older adults don't. They don't answer the home safety question, domestic violence questions the way that younger adults do. And I don't know if it's the intergenerational differences, the way it's phrased, but our triage questions and research is all based on younger adults. So those questions don't work as well. So you need someone who knows how to tease out geriatric depression, how to do cognitive evaluations, what resources are in the community to get them set up back home. And that's also where the case manager comes in. Our case managers do this amazing home assessment. Do you live on one floor, two floors? How often does your son come in to help out? Who does your groceries? How can we get you resources? Do you need travel assistance to your appointments? Uh, that makes a huge difference in how to care for somebody. So the whole goal is that we will upfront know what they need at discharge before we even know if they're going to be admitted or discharged. And that helps the whole hospital stay too. We know that getting physical therapy involved with older adults on day one reduces hospital-acquired functional decline, which ends up in people not being able to go back to their formal way of living or do their formal activities, and a majority end up in nursing homes. Nursing home placement lengthens a hospital stay, increases boarding. It's all connected. So all the things we do in the ED actually help your whole health system. So that's my dream team. We've got someone with geriatric training to give you that holistic view of what their needs are, a case manager or social worker to help with arrangements and understanding community resources, pharmacist or pharmacy evaluation in some fashion, and your therapy team. That's a 
incredible team. And so Vank had asked a great question. What if, what if we could do anything? I'm going to ask a more operations-based question, which is how do we pay for it? Is an ED that's focused on geriatric care or one of these OBS units, is that something that's financially viable? Completely. So the great thing about having this amazing team is most of them can bill for their own work. So your physical therapists, physical occupational and speech therapy can all bill assessments as consultants out of the ED, and it's their regular outpatient billing rate. And the neat thing about therapists is the way, and this could change any day, but the way hospital therapy is billed is it's rolled into the daily DRG payment for that patient. So inpatient rehab services don't generate money for the hospital. They generate money by reducing, by improving our care and reducing length of stay for patients, but they don't bill when they see somebody after a hip fracture. That billing is, they don't bill independently. It's all rolled in. So they can bill independently when they see things from patients in the ED, just like they would. And then if they get them to clinic or we set up home health, you know, obviously we only do this if the patient needs it, but it's actually revenue generating for your health system. Similarly, if you have an inpatient geriatric consult team, which not all hospitals have because there's a dearth of geriatricians and geriatric trained professionals, but if you do, they can come down and bill just like you'd have a cardiologist come down and drop their note or a uh, surgeon. So again, they bill for their own time. It's not your ED funding these positions. Pharmacy reviews is a little harder. A lot of hospitals work it into They're inpatient because by the criteria we have, everybody needs a medication review when they're admitted to the hospital. So most hospitals will have a pharmacy tech or someone doing medication reviews. And if you can pull that resource again down to the ED, you know, don't wait two days into their stay upstairs. Let's do it on the front door. Then you help your hospital. And finally, geriatric geriatricians and geriatric nurse practitioners, they can bill for their own consults. If you're going with a geriatric trained nurse, then you're, you can't, they can't bill separately. I think what I hear you saying is my current HPI of this older adult with complex history on a number of medications, I could do better. We have, we have ways that we could tighten that up. I want to inspire you to do better. (laughs) It's such an educator's way of portraying it. I love it. That's perfect. I was thinking, so you, I haven't shared this, but my wife, the better half of our family is a physical medicine rehabilitation leader. And I can't wait tonight to tell her how much I know about how we could potentially provide better services for the patients in the ED and do it in a financially re- uh, responsible way for the hospital and for PM&R. I'm going to blow her mind with some of this stuff. Oh yeah. If you can get PM&R to come to your ED, it's amazing because some of them are um, trained in different types of pain control. So sometimes I've been able to consult a PM&R team to do rib blocks, to do different nerve blocks for um, headaches. We had one woman who was on huge doses of, of opioids for shingles and came to ED because her shingles pain was so bad. And, and we were able to do a rib block. And she said, this is the most comfortable I've been in three weeks. So PM&R is amazing. You can also do, um, if they have a falls assessment clinic, Maybe you can't do all of this in the ED, but you have a patient who you think they're at risk for falls or they've been falling, even if they're not in the ED for a chief complaint of falls, you can say, hey, you've got whatever bronchitis. I'm going to send you home with bronchitis treatment, but I'm worried that you need to get your strength up and we need to get you moving more. I'm going to get your referral to my wife's amazing fall risk clinic. 
which is usually an interdisciplinary clinic where PM&R will see them and someone will go through their meds and talk about home safety and therapy, and you could save someone's life. The thing that I really appreciated in our discussion is that uh, you've tried to target models of care to local resources and local structures of care. Let's say you're in a, a small community shop and currently there's no geriatric interventions. If you were uh, to speak to one of those physicians and say, this is one quality project or one, one intervention you could start on your next shift to try and improve care for this important population, what, what would you say? I would say that the first thing you should do is learn what you already have and don't even know about. Every area in the United States is broken down to area agencies on aging, and that is a government-funded program to help older adults in your community. And they may have travel services, they may have home safety services, they may be funding Meals on Wheels for older adults. So there are community resources, I can guarantee, in your area. And if you start to ask and look, you can cooperate with them. And maybe you can't do all these assessments in the ED, but you can say, all right, this seven-year-old is living in the community at home. I'm a little iffy on how they're doing. Can you guys send a case manager out to assess them? And they will say, Dr. Finch, we would be so delighted. You just made our day. Our whole goal is to find vulnerable elders and help them as best we can. And sometimes they don't, people in the community don't realize that their taxes have already paid for all these things and you can use them. So that's the first thing. You may not think you have resources, but you do. There are things out in the community. You can talk to your local adult protective services, see what they need, how to make your work in the ED uh, work with them. This person's vulnerable. I'm worried about self-neglect. I'm worried about hoarding. Can you go assess them? How can we open these lines of communication so that the ED is not a black box? And that will make your community happier because they see the hospital as a black box. A lot of our patients have outpatient case managers. Oh, the other place is through insurance agencies. A lot of insurance agencies have vulnerable patient programs and they have case managers for older adults. So your patient might qualify for a lot of resources, might have case managers trying to arrange things for them. And you don't have to duplicate that work. You just have to know who to call and make someone else do it for you. That's incredible. I would never have thought to access any of those resources and often when I think about this kind of advice, I think, oh, we're going to need to hire four new people, but I, I wouldn't even have thought to, to look, look in these places for resources that already exist. Yeah. yeah. As I said, you got to do it without hiring any more staff, Alex. So we got to be frugal here. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, the, I mean, I'm laughing, but that is the genius of what you're talking about. I, I was thinking coming into the interview, I was going to ask you, well, what measure are we going to show that we're going to improve to justify the cost of this? And, and what I'm hearing is, in fact, this doesn't have to be a very expensive endeavor. And in fact, it can be very financially healthy for an institution to do not only what is right, but what is best for these patients. Just to summarize what I heard, make sure I'm hearing it correctly. It's about thinking about these patients in a bigger sense than their acute injury or acute presentation what might've precipitated it, what might be the, the downstream effects of having that injury, and then about the ED stay itself and trying to make it more accessible by having, not hearing aids, but aids for hearing, aids for sight, trying to make the environment less toxic and, and uncomfortable, which like you said, every patient would appreciate, I think. And it's really, to use your word, inspiring me to think about this differently. And I'm very appreciative of that. I, 
it's different than the operations questions that I was expecting to think about because I was thinking about trying to justify this, but it seems in, intuitively the right thing to do and easy to do from the way you're describing it. It's one of those things that once you start practicing like this, you can't go back because you see the change you make in people's lives. And when you set up systems, again, to help these people, you help all your patients. It ties into this whole concept of the social determinants of health that affect all our patients and are more predictive of their healthcare outcomes than anything we do in the ED. I think along those lines, something that I was really interested in was a survey-based project you did that looked at fellowship-trained emergency geriatricians. And one finding was that there was a very high job satisfaction. And that really spoke to me in our field where people are struggling with burnout. And in listening to you and your passion for this, I think that, you know, I look at emergency physicians in general, and I think with this population, it's almost sometimes a signal of burnout. A lot of what you're talking about is trying to figure out systems and ways to dig deeper and to ask more questions and to find more problems. You know, sometimes I, I see, wow, this feels almost unsolvable. I'm, I'm in a system and this is fatigue. I'm not going to be able to solve this today. You start to feel frustrated and like you can't help, you can't make it better. And what I hear you saying is this approach that you're, you've developed and you're expanding, it, it is inspiring and it adds to job satisfaction and looking for those more problems improves the quality of life for our patients, which is why we got into this. And it's a, a really incredible, incredible thing to hear you speaking about. Oh, thank you. So Vank, going back to your question about uh, talking to your wife tonight, just the other day, I was um, rounding in the ED for one of our quality improvement projects. And one of the residents said, I have this patient and she's screened positive for fall risk. We do, we actually stand them up and see if they can balance and walk. It's amazing how many people can't. The other thing that's amazing is when we say, oh, you look like you're a fall risk. And then we cut off the little yellow bracelet and take off their special socks and then send them back out in the community. Like they stop being a fall risk once they leave our ED, but we're we're so focused on it when they're in the ED. It seems (laughs) like, isn't that ridiculous? Yeah. Now that you mention it, but I did that in the last week several (laughs) times and yeah. Yeah. Watch for it. It's going to happen every day in your ED if you don't have programs in place to help them. So she said, this person failed her balance testing, but she lives at home with her husband and she has Parkinson's and there's nothing acute changing in, in her gait. It's just her normal Parkinson's. So I think she's safe to go home. And I said, yes, she's probably safe to go home. But did you know that PMNR has a Parkinson's clinic just to help these patients? And you could give her that referral and maybe they could help her prevent falls. And her eyes just lit up and she said, yes, that's what I needed for her is who a specialist to get her to that will help her and her husband with her worsening Parkinson's and who better than PMNR. It's little things like that, that then that's that job satisfaction is I did something that other people can't do to improve the care of this patient. And that's how you fight burnout. Absolutely. And I, I realize how many times I've, I've been in awe of the different subspecialty clinics that my wife's practice has, but I happen to find out because, you know, I'm married to her. If you had advice for people who are wondering, listening to this, how do I find out about these subspecialty clinics at my particular shop? Are there particular specialties you would target for this purpose? And if so, what are your like top three or four? 
So again, this goes back to that concept. If you think you have nothing, start asking and you will find things. So I would talk to someone in neurology, say, hey, do you guys have a cognitive assessment clinic or a clinic for patients with dementia? If you have geriatrics available in your community, and many communities don't, there's such a huge shortage. So sometimes this need is short up by neurology, by PMNR, by primary care and family medicine docs. So there may be someone who is geriatrics trained, but his family medicine. And can you send them to that type of clinic? Uh, sometimes Ooh. occupational therapy does, or speech therapy does cognitive assessments for the hospital. Sometimes it's psychiatry. So it's figuring out which clinic is the resource in your area. And if not, you need to go to your health system and say, look at this. There is a need. The need's going to be growing. How can we manage this? So I think uh, I have a much clearer vision of uh, geriatrics and emergency medicine and the importance of, of resources. And I think most importantly, asking more questions about the resources I have and I, I don't don't know about. I feel like I'm I'm at the bottom of the pyramid. I'm the unconsciously incompetent, right? Like there's all these things that exist that I'm just not asking about. But as an educator and an associate program director, what are we doing well in residency education to address this population? And more importantly, what can we do better? Well, I would say in general, residency doesn't prepare our older adults to have this geriatric mindset. In fact, there's been several papers published that the ABEM model of medicine, which is very disease oriented, you know, the questions are, is it CHF or not CHF? Do you treat with this med or that med? It's very hard to write multiple choice questions about an older adult comes in with concern for a proximal humerus fracture after a fall, what do you do? Well, you need to do 20 different things. It's hard to make that a one-line question. And so when we teach to the test, right? So we need to think about how we're training these residents. There are several documents on the domains of geriatrics that aren't clearly in the ABEM model. There's a 2010 paper by Tess Hogan, which laid out eight domains of education. And they're, they're the things we've been talking about. Atypical presentations. An older adult can be septic with normal vitals. An older adult can be, you know, about to die from internal bleeding with normal vitals because their baseline blood pressure is 160 and now they're down to 120 and we don't realize it's a 40 point drop and they're on metoprolol for their blood pressure. And so their heart rate doesn't go up and it's every lecture you give. Think about how you would change it for an older adult. Okay. We're talking about heart failure management. And you send the person out on Lasix. Well, if you send an older adult on Lasix, you got to say, take it only in the morning. Because if they're up all night urinating, then they're going to fall. And you have to talk to them about fall prevention. Do you have a nightlight? How do you get up to the bathroom? Are there tripping hazards on the way? Are you furniture surfing around to get around and keep yourself upright? And how are these medications I'm going to prescribe going to change things for you? So when that would be my... My one thing that if I could ask residency program directors everywhere is every lecture you think about, think about how you would change that if you're older adult specific. And if we can add that little nugget in every single time, then we'll change the way our residents approach these patients. And we as attendings have to model that behavior for them. Oh, and the other thing, there's the Tess Hogan domains from 2010 paper, and then the European Society made a whole list. They've got, I think it's 41 points of geriatric emergency medicine education that should be integrated into curriculum. So Lauren, I've seen multiple inventories of geriatric competencies for training. If you had to pick your 
like the five unicorn competencies you wish that all graduates walk out with, what are they? Improved transitions of care. So a lot of what we've been talking about is, is handoffs to the skilled nursing facility, to the community, to inpatient. It's a big area of need and we do not do it well. We don't even understand how nursing facilities work. And if you don't understand that, then you make terrible discharge instructions like come back if your chest pain worsens. That's not what the nursing facility needs to know. So transitions of care is a major one. Polypharmacy. We tend to think of drugs in isolation. I'm going to give you this antibiotic and maybe if I'm lucky, I'll review your medication list and see if you're on Coumadin or any interactions or you're already on six QT prolonging medications and I'm going to add on Flagyl to it and Cipro for your diverticulitis and now your QT is 550. Right. How many times do you just order antibiotics and don't even look at person's med list because we're used to thinking about somebody that only has one problem. So you have to think about how that problem is going to, how that medication is going to interact with other medications and think about prescribing cascades, a fantastic term. One doc prescribes a medication, which causes side effects. And another doc prescribes a medication to help with the side effects, which causes more side effects. And another doc prescribes a medication to help with those side effects. And you get these prescribing cascades. A classic one is someone started on a calcium channel blocker for high blood pressure, which then have a very common side effect of pedal edema. So then the person comes in with pedal edema and they say, okay, we're going to add on a diuretic to help with your pedal edema when really they should be changing the blood pressure class that was causing the side effects. So now they're on a calcium channel blocker and a diuretic and their potassium goes down. So now they either add on spironolactone or they add on potassium. And you can see how suddenly people are getting on multiple medications that they don't need. That's a prescribing cascade. Or now they can't sleep at night because we added on an anticholinergic. And so now we give them trazodone or something else that's terrible for them. Transitions of care, really talk about polypharmacy and what we do to our patients. Geriatric trauma. We Our trauma guidelines are not great for older adults. Trauma triage criteria needs to be changed for older adults. The vital signs for when they really have internal bleedings and problems that need to be adjusted. Most places do a, you're a level one trauma. If your blood pressure is 90 or less, that should be hundred or 110 for older adults. They can have terrible injuries and they'll have a little bit higher blood pressure. And this, this is all data-driven. ACS, the American College of Surgeons, recognizes that they have whole geriatric trauma guidelines that most people don't even know about. With older adults, you often have your standard trauma order. I'm going to get a blood alcohol, a hemoglobin, a this or a that. Consider an EKG. Why did they crash the car? I've had so many cases of people having a heart attack while driving and then crashing. One time I sat in the scanner with someone doing a non-con CT so I could take him up to the cath lab directly afterwards if he had no internal bleeding so they could cath his STEMI. Like in any fractures, we'll fix later. Exactly. So that's another big area of, we tend to think of geriatric trauma as a fall and a hip fracture, but there's so much else to it. Our older generation right now loves to ski. They love to drive. They're going out places. They're not just sitting on their couch waiting to fall. So people have all sorts of injuries. Personally, like to be at home when I fall on the couch. It's, it's my preference. No, but we have this ageism bias that we all have, that this is what an older adult is supposed to do. And it's not true. Older adults was... also do drugs and they have sex. Just putting that out there. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> No, it's funny you mentioned it. I was watching American Ninja Warrior with my kids last night over dinner. And 
a uh, 70 plus year old co contestant was on the show and we were all captivated to see how they did and it challenged my every conception of what being 70 could be my grandmother we got her hooked on that show when she had a moderate to severe, severe dementia and she loved it she's like he's gonna fall he's gonna fall <laughs> Perfect, because you don't have to remember anything about previous runs or episodes at all. That's nope. wonderful. She loved it. I love it. So, so you mentioned uh, transitions of care, and by that, I'm taking it to mean not handoffs within ED necessarily as much as handoffs between the ED and the inpatient side, or hospital and SNF, that kind of thing. All of that, but the ED to ED handoff is also very dangerous. How often are our handoffs one line? 68-year-old man, ACS rule out. If second trope is negative, send home. Absolutely. And then you go back yes. in the room and, and you're like, okay, your second trombone is negative. You're ready to go. And you say, well, but what's my diagnosis? What's been going on? Why is my heart fluttering in my chest every 10 minutes? And you're like, oh, who signed this out to me? <laughs> it's you like she's following us around, Alex. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, exactly. are they safe to go home? Can he walk? You know, the, you know listening to all this, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And at the same time, I'm wondering, how do I do this without having two hours per patient? Take us inside what it was like if we could shadow you seeing a patient. How have you woven these questions into your history, your exam? How does your sign up sound like to not take an hour per patient, but yet be effective for these folks? You are welcome to come and join me anytime. It would be a blast. We might so take you up on it. But <laughs> so we have built in, like I said, it takes a team. It can't be just you trying to do this. I can do a mocha or I can do a mini cog off the top of my head, but you can't. And it's unlikely that you want to go back and do a full year's fellowship training. But what I, what you can do is there are a bunch of screening tools that can be very helpful. You can pick the one that works best with your system. So a lot of places, and we're doing this now, all our nurses are trained. Anybody over 65 gets a delirium screen a stand them up and see if they can fall down walking screen. It's not enough to ask, have you had falls? You have to truly see how someone's moving because they may not have fallen, but now that they have pneumonia and they're feeling kind of dizzy or vertigo, they're going to fall. So you have to stand people up. So we do a delirium screen, a fall risk screen, and something called the identifying seniors at risk score. It's six quick questions. Do you need help at home? No. In the past 24 hours, have you needed more help? Yeah. You know, I was so fatigued. I couldn't get out of bed or cook for myself. Do you have vision problems? Do you have memory problems? Have you been in hospitalized recently? And are you on six or more medications? The whole thing, all those three tests take a minute and a half. So a nurse does that. I draw it into my note in a dot phrase. And then I click through and say, they failed their delirium test. Is it acute delirium or is it dementia? I was in there. This is their baseline dementia. They don't have waxing and waning or abnormal mental status. They just can't answer questions properly to baseline dementia. So I'm going to mark not delirious. But if they are delirious, then we can start delirium protocols. And that's, again, where your nurses and your team comes in. So my assessment is abbreviated because we spread it out amongst the whole team. Yeah, I think they need case management. Send a message to the case manager. They might spend a half hour in there. And then they get back to me with Lauren, I need you to write a prescription for a walker, home health. Um, I'm getting them set up with a community case manager to assess because I'm worried about um, nutrition. Oh, that's another thing. 15% of older adults in the ED are malnourished. How do we recognize that? What does that look like? I'm assuming they don't all look emaciated. 
Correct. Because sometimes it's, it's protein calorie malnutrition. So you can, some places have done that as let's do screening for a lack of access to food. Or if you notice that their electrolytes are off or their proteins real low, don't just say, oh, well, she's old. Even if you're only 85 pounds, you should have a normal albumin. You know, maybe you're only four foot to begin with. So these are things to think about. So you just have to get your team in to help you and know who you can call in. And I have stashes of equipment everywhere. Like today I have a shift out in triage. So I have some hearing aids stuck in a cabinet out in triage. So I don't have to rock back to the equipment station. So I can just say, okay, here you go. Now we can hear each other. <laughs> what brought you in today? Fantastic. After my ultrasound fellowship, I would always hide ultrasound gel everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it's obvious. It makes total sense. So I, I was thinking about the very first thing you mentioned about how you operationalize this with, for example, getting them up and seeing how unsteady they look. I'm imagining that many patients who need to be in the, need more support during their acute illness will end up being admitted to the hospital. And I'm imagining the reaction from downstream physicians and providers about how this may feel like what they, some people term a social admit. How do you respond when you hear those kinds of things for your patients? I think that is a concern we've had in the past because in the past, Medicare didn't pay for hospitalizations if there wasn't an acute medical issue. So how we've gone around that is we use our observation unit. So if I'm not certain that someone has an acute medical issue or I, I've solved their acute medical issue, but I'm still concerned about their needs at home, I can keep them overnight in observation. They can see physical therapy, occupational therapy, the case manager and a geriatrician, and we can work out a plan. And sometimes those teams come back and say, Dr. Sutherland, this patient cannot go home. They need 24-hour assistance. They have cognitive impairment. And so that can actually justify admission or justify nursing facility placement. Or in the opposite, we've seen them. We've got everything in place. They're going to follow up with me in cognitive clinic. And I've adjusted some of their medications and the daughter is willing to stay with her the next couple of days as we wait for the home health agency to come in and get things set up. So sometimes we have a safer discharge. Sometimes we have justification for admission. Our observation unit is, is staffed such that patients have to be independently functional to be there. Um, so that really excludes a lot of folks that were concerned about falls. The other thing that comes up in our shop, and I don't know about others, is that a lot of our patients are concerned when they're given the observation status tag that they will be hit with a significant financial burden out of pocket because of that. Are you seeing these things? And do you have any ideas for us? Yes. Yeah, so the financial concerns are valid because in the past, many hospitals would keep people in observation status for multiple days. Observation medicine is considered outpatient, which is a different part of Medicare than the inpatient, which is Medicare Part A. And so with your outpatient services, you have a deductible. So you can ask the patient, you might have a deductible for your Medicare Part D, and this would go towards it, but you shouldn't be getting a huge bill. And now that's been fixed. There's the moon notice, the multiple overnight observation notice, where if they're going to be there if they're there for 24 hours, someone in the hospital has to see them and, and either change them to admission or say, you know, you're still ob status and this is what we're doing. In all the data that's been done on this, the sense that problem of hospitals keeping people in observation for days on end has been fixed. Patients' copays usually are lower than what would happen if they had an inpatient stay. The other thing that's that changed. 
is that it used to have a three night inpatient stay to qualify for Medicare to pay for nursing facility. And that was yeah. waived with COVID. So we can place people out of OBS right now. Okay. And it's so much help, more helpful. Do you anticipate that, or do you have any sense of if that's going to get repealed or do you think it's gained traction enough that it'll probably stay? I think it's gained traction and I think yeah. it'll probably stay. Awesome. For those that might be interested in a fellowship, what extra training is that going to give them and what should they be looking for in a great program? There are multiple SAM accredited geriatric fellowships now. There are one and two year programs and it depends what your trainee wants to do. So most of the two years are either Jerry plus. So a geriatric education fellowship where you do all the geriatric rotations, plus you're getting your master's in education or focusing on education. There's Jerry admin where people can get an MBA and geriatric training. And then, you know, you're set up to run a health systems, you know, 18 geriatric EDs. And then there's one-year clinical training. There's research training. I did a one-year fellowship at Beaumont Hospital in Michigan. And so it was focused mainly clinical. I went in it thinking, okay, I'll learn a little bit about Medicaid and Medicare and payment systems, but otherwise I know everything, you know, that sort of unconscious incompetence. My mind was blown away. I loved it. I got to round on the geriatric inpatient service, which is seeing patients with delirium and problems all over the hospital. It was really awesome being in the ICU because, you know, we in emergency medicine speak surgeon and internal medicine. I remember distinctly one patient, we were consulted for delirium in the ICU and I did a head to toe exam. And I said, he's delirious because he's in severe pain from um, phimosis. They had pulled his foreskin back to place a Foley and it hadn't gone back. And so he was super swollen. And so the cure was an emergency urology consult to fix that. He incised the foreskin, fixed it. And the patient's delirium resolved by that afternoon. Fantastic. That's so too it, bad that it took that long to fix multiple that. Multiple days. Yeah. yeah. But I can see it happening to all of us everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it was just building up that knowledge was fun. I did months. So what I would do is I would have my ED shifts, like any fellowship, you know, you have your eight to 10 or whatever your ED fellow schedule is. And then I would be an extra person on geriatrics on top of that. So I spent time in a geriatric urology clinic, learning about incontinence, both male and female and how to treat it. That served me so well in emergency medicine. I spent time with a geriatric psychiatrist depression management in older adults, working with a pharmacist, learning about polypharmacy, rounding on the, in the nursing homes, learning all about patients face there. And that's where I learned things like when you discharge someone to a nursing home, they have 72 hours for their physician to see them and write orders. So if you don't write specific orders on their discharge, then they might not get those medications until their physician comes in and rounds. So if you have someone who you want, they need to be on this antibiotic or, or, you know, I need their blood pressure checked, be very clear. They were here for hypoglycemia. We are adjusting their insulin to this. I want it checked this many times a day. Call the doc if this or that. That's how clear you need to be. Not just our typical, you were here for abdominal pain. Come back if you have a fever or vomiting. Thank you. Goodbye. They need, give them a copy of the lab work and any tests you did that will help because often the nursing homes aren't on the same computer system we are on. 
And imagine how frustrating it is to be so concerned about someone you see every day in your nursing home. You're a nurse there. You're doing your best to take care of them. You send them to the hospital and they come back and you don't know what's happened and they still look sick to you. We do no that. Perspective of that. And that's eye-opening that 72 hours might pass while they're in a healthcare facility and they may not have access to the care that we anticipate them having. And you've had those patients come back to your ED and say, I was there and no one was seeing me and no one changed my wound or gave me my antibiotics. That's because the, the transitions team didn't write good discharge instructions. And nurses in a facility can't do anything without orders. Brilliant and easy to fix, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'd like to sometime maybe have you back and talk about tips and tricks for handling incontinence, constipation, et cetera, in a geriatric for the geriatric patient, if you're open to something like that? I, I would love to. For one of our geriatric conferences at ASAP, I gave a uh, lecture on patient flow in the emergency department that flow. was all on urinary and constipation issues. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's fantastic. Well, Also, I, just the, the yeah. understanding of sometimes residents think, don't realize that assisted living, independent living, nursing facility all have different resources. And so Absolutely. I've had patients, even family members, discharged back to an assisted living when they're incapable now because they're injured or acute illness, they can't do their own ADLs. But because they're in a facility, people thought they would be cared for. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking about that, Alex. I don't think we cover that explicitly anywhere, do we? We don't. And I think this is kind of that HPI first line comes from a facility, no details. And, and so we're digging deeper into that first, first line. Now, in my mind, going back to the fellowships question, I was going to ask you, Lauren, I see palliative care fellowships and geriatric medicine fellowships. And in my mind, they feel very similar. Am I thinking about that wrong? What do you see as the distinctions between them? And There is completely a Venn diagram overlap because they're both focused on more holistic care. Older adults have a lot of end-of-life issues and a big concern on goals of care. So both those things overlap. And if you look again at the geriatric EM educational domains and the palliative EM educational domains, there is some overlap there, especially in transitions of care, in involving caregivers, in decision-making, and especially evoking patients' wishes and goals of care, which we are not good at in the ED. One thing um, that's very helpful if you've ever done it with your residents is the Vital Talks program. It's this fantastic communication program. That that came out of palliative medicine, but it's all about how to have difficult conversations with patients. You break into small groups and work with standardized patients where you can say, oh, wait, stop that. That came out totally wrong. What's a different phrase I can use? It's mind boggling how good that program is. It's called Vital Talks. Wonderful, we'll have to implement that. Um, so, so it's your question. There is overlap between the two, but there's also uh, symptom control also. Symptom control in older adults differs, but palliative medicine has more of a goals of care symptom control approach throughout the lifespan, throughout uh, treatment. We tend to think of them as end of life, but really palliative medicine should be on board for the first time someone's diagnosed with cancer or a long-term illness. The majority of our patients that we're seeing in the ED with CHF, end-stage renal disease, end-stage cancers, all of those patients could be referred to palliative medicine from the ED and you will change their lives. That's helpful. And for my awareness, are there combined geriatric palliative care fellowship options for people to consider? Not that I know of, but there are places that offer both. 
So if that's something that you had a resident who wanted, I've sent residents both to PIDEV EM fellowships and GRE EM fellowships. And so it's what, what you want to make your training. This area is so flexible. And those of us that are in it are so excited that we'll create anything to work with somebody. Very true. That everyone we've met so far and in, in these areas is super excited to talk and teach about what's going on. I was going to change directions a little bit. So I was thinking about how many of our the, the listeners may be interested in becoming involved in leadership and at an organized medicine level. And who better to ask what that's like, how to get there than you? Can you talk a little bit about that? How you become chair of these uh, interest group sections or committees at ASAP SAM, what it's done for your career and any advice you have for other faculty interested in that? Yes. So I think, and this isn't limited to, to geriatric emergency medicine. I think this would apply to any group or any interest you have. You got to do the work. So start going to the meetings. Every board meeting and every group in SAM is open to all its members to join in. So try to make the monthly meetings, speak up. We have a lot of imposter syndrome in emergency medicine where we always feel like we're not good enough or, you know, she's on the board president. She must know so much more than I do. Not always. I'm, and we're delighted to have more people join us and speak up. So you know, imagine if a new person joined the ultrasound group and said, hey, I have a question. Van could be like, yeah, I'm happy to answer your question. So delighted to have you here. Let's get you involved in a project. Absolutely. Yeah. Is, yeah. It, it's the same. So just get involved. And then if you like it and enjoy it, maybe you join a subcommittee and learn how you design didactics or how you nominate people for your organization's awards. And then maybe you become a member at large or secretary or one of the positions and you work your way up. You know, I, I went joined from, I went to two meetings and now I'm running for president. That's a bit difficult. I know that, you know, in the US politically that seems to work, but probably not in big emergency medicine societies. Now, I, I must confess, I, I did that for- <laughs> Did you? I did. I was the uh, Quips section chair for ASAP after attending my third meeting, <laughs> um, but I was inspired and I have a background in, in Quips, so it helps that way, but <laughs> but that's really helpful. And for some of our listeners, they may not be aware of the sections versus committees at ASAP and then an SAM, uh, there's some other academies. nuances. Yeah, exactly. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yes. SAM has academies. And those and interest groups. So academies have at least, I believe, 100 people that really love that topic. And they get business meetings, so some dedicated time at the, at the SAM meeting to bring everyone together and talk. They also get some dedicated didactic time. So each year we have, I believe it's two hours of didactics that we as the Academy of Geriatric Emergency Medicine can say, we really want to teach about elder speak or about end of life conversations and SAM will say, okay, fine. We'll humor you for two hours. And then <laughs> you could also have more things that you submit as topics, but they go into the general pile. So you get some guaranteed time, you get some funding and there are different resources for academies. And then interest groups are smaller. They may be more subspecialized, may have a smaller membership. So one thing we did with the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Academy and the Evidence-Based Medicine Interest Group as we designed a didactic together about the implementation of fall risk programs. And it was really fun working across groups. Now, 
we made it not just a didactic, but a monthly group that meets. So now we have 15 to 20 people who meet and talk about, okay, I'm struggling with implementing a fall risk program because my chair says we can't afford physical therapy or something. How do we fix that? And the rest of us chime and say, oh, come at them with this argument, or we did it this way. Or I had a friend say, we can't have walkers in our ED because our nurses are not certified to teach patients how to use walkers. And I said, okay, I'm sorry you're running into that barrier. You're a specific institution. Can your nurses hand out canes? Because I think those are far more risky. <laughs> he was able to, to go back. But you know, you get weird things like this. And it's nice to have a group to come back and say, am I crazy? How do I get around this? One thing that can happen with these big organizations is that groups get stuck in their own group and, and reaching out and joining interest groups, academies, they're all fun. And same at SAM. SAM has sections, which are the bigger groups, committees. And then they have the ASAP. Uh, oh, yeah, the council. Counselors. Council, yes, the ASAP council. Yeah. Yeah. So each section can send people to the council and bring up resolutions that yeah. ASAP then votes for. And then ASAP also has things like clinical practice guideline committees who are writing things like the GRACE guidelines for low risk chest pain so that you can discharge someone safely from the ED and use the heart pathway. So there's tons of stuff going on. And it's really hard residency because you're so focused on, you know, what's my next rotation and ah, where's this surgery room and, and stuff. But if someone has a passion as med students, as residents, it's super easy to get involved in these groups. And you know, I've literally just walked into rooms at the time, not even being on the listserv or something. I just saw the time on the, you know, annual meeting and said, exactly. hey, can I join you? And everyone's like, yeah. Absolutely. Everyone's so welcoming is my experience, just like you're saying. And the biggest barrier seems to be just taking the initiative to go and say something. Mm -hmm. Or having a mentor to be your proponent and say, I think you'd benefit from being in this group. Yes. What a good point. Dr. Sutherland, we want to thank you so much for, for coming to talk with us today. You have an incredible passion for geriatric emergency medicine, and I've personally learned so much. I think the word that keeps coming up in our discussion is inspiring. And I think that you're doing just that. You're inspiring us to take much better care of this important population. And so thank you so much. Well, thank you again. It's been a wonderful time talking with both of you. Hi, folks. Wasn't that awesome? I have to say that interview or conversation with Dr. Lauren Sutherland was so much fun and left me thinking about how much different and better I could do in my practice. I hope you felt the same way. I know Alex and I have been reflecting on ways that we can make the content that we talk about on our episodes more accessible to you all. And as a result, we're experimenting with the idea of creating blog posts or companion text documents that go with these episodes. And so for the last month's episode on LVAD and for this month's episode on geriatric emergency medicine, we have created companion documents in the Mayo Clinic EM blog. So if you're interested in learning more or need a visual companion to go with the audio format, I would encourage you to go check these out. The website is emblog, all one word, .mayo.edu, and you can find these and other great pieces of content related to emergency medicine. Please reach out to us. Let us know what you think about this. 
we're really trying hard to make content that's accessible and useful to you all. And if you think we're doing a good job, we'd appreciate it if you subscribe to our podcast to get more timely updates and also give us that positive feedback that we're on the right track. If you think we could do better, please email us or reach out on Twitter or in other formats as we want to hear from you and make this the best experience possible for you and your needs. Until next month, when we meet again, be safe, be well, be happy. Alex and I appreciate you all very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Valamkanda.